Some traditions are a lot of fun. Some are a little bit weird. Some are dangerous. If you Google it like I did, you'll find out, man, that is not safe. <laughs> but they still, they still do it. Traditions, a lot of times for us, they're fun. They're meaningful. Many of you have family traditions that are extremely meaningful. But some, uh, some traditions actually cause divisions. Divisions. And it's usually the religious traditions that have caused divisions, which is why just in Christianity alone there are over 20,000 different denominations. It could be just from religious traditions. Have you ever found yourself in some sort of conflict with a family member, a friend, or somebody online because of a tradition, a religious tradition? I'll tell you, Jesus did. Jesus was in conflict with a lot of religious people because of tradition. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually recorded it, all the same situation. Matthew 15, verses 1 and 2. We're going to be in Matthew 15 today, but I'm just going to read it to you real quick so you can see it. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat. They were mad at him for not washing his hands when he eat. That was a tradition that they had, and this wasn't the first one that Jesus didn't do, that they wanted him to do. I've been questioned over the years as a pastor, and our church is non-denominational, yet we have a lot of churches around us that do things differently. One of the biggest ones I get all the time is, why don't we baptize babies like other churches do? Why don't we have communion every single week like other churches do? Why do we have instruments and some churches only sing? Why do I preach using the English Standard Version, the ESV, and not the KJV? If you know any KJVers out there, they're hardcore. The one that always makes me laugh is when I first got ordained, I was asked, am I going to wear a white collar like priests do? I'm pretty sure if I would have said, well, maybe, she would have went out and bought me it. (laughs) See, Christianity has three main groups. We have Catholics. We have Protestants, which falls many, many different, Baptists, Methodists, all those, and then Orthodox. And all those groups have their own traditions. They have lots of traditions, long-standing traditions. In many cases, they're super zealous about them. Like, it's, if you don't do it their way, they'll tell you in many cases you're in sin. You're sinning against God. I have a feeling that many of you have grown up following some specific traditions. And I'm not here to pick on any particular denomination or any particular group of Christianity. I'm just saying that you've probably grown up in some traditions. And right now, if you belong to this church, if you come to this church regularly, you probably might feel like a little bit weird that you don't do those things anymore. Maybe you feel guilty you don't do them. Maybe you feel relieved that you don't have to do them anymore. I'm not sure what religious traditions have done to you or for you. But here's what God teaches you. Here's what I need you to know. I want you to know this. Following traditions will never make you right with God. Following tradition is not the path to heaven. And secondly, 
if your heart isn't right, even if you do a God-honoring tradition, it doesn't matter. You have to make sure your heart is right when you follow the tradition. Jesus said this in verse 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It's not the tradition, breaking the tradition. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. If you break tradition, you're not defiling yourself, you're not polluting yourself, you're not making yourself unholy, it doesn't ruin your relationship with God. Your heart is the key. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And your heart is what God cares about, not the tradition. I'll say that again because it's that important. Your heart is what God cares about the most, not the tradition. Will you pray with me? God, I pray and ask that you would help our hearts to receive this message, that we could know the truth, that tradition, even if it means well, it has the great purpose, that it's not the way to you. The way to you is through your Son, Jesus, and that our heart is right. For you desire mercy, not sacrifice. I thank you, Lord, for us gathering here today. I pray that we will be energized, be encouraged by your word being taught. I pray, Father, that I'm not here to entertain, but to bring the word, and I trust your word will not come back void. In Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. So I'm going to preach you the word. I'm going to teach you what God's word says. We've been going through the Gospels, harmonizing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And even though Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this same uh, scenario, um, that uh, this encounter that Jesus had, I'm going to read to you from Matthew um, chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 1. So we're going to settle on this verse for a moment. It's the Pharisees and the scribes had uh, left, came, came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So let me just give you the context of what's happening here. Jesus is in Galilee. Galilee is about 80 miles from Jerusalem. 80 miles. They traveled 80 miles to publicly rebuke Jesus for breaking the tradition. They were probably sent from the Sanhedrin. If you don't know what the Sanhedrin is, basically it was the Supreme Court of Israel. Seventy ruling elders in one high priest. And 80 miles, just to give you some understanding here by foot, it, that's not a morning stroll, okay? When I go for a walk with my wife, she likes to make it an exercise uh, time, and she gets mad at me when we don't keep pace at at least 15 minutes a mile. I'm in trouble. I'm in the doghouse if we're over 15 minutes. So... Based on my wife's pace of 15 minutes a mile, 80 miles would take 20 hours. So for them to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee, you're talking about at least a three-day trip. Because they weren't walking on sidewalks like we get to. right? It's uneven ground. So three days to get to Jesus. Now let me give you an understanding of who these people are. I often talk about the religious leaders, and I've never really told you exactly who they are, and maybe you already know, but I'll give you the kind of four, the four leaders that we see in the Bible. First of all, you hear the word scribes. 
comes from the word scribe to write or to scribble. The first scribe was Ezra. Ezra um, lived uh, about 450 B.C. He was that priest that brought the exiles back to Jerusalem after it had been destroyed. After they had went into captivity, he brought them back, and he reestablished worship in Jerusalem. And when he reestablished it, he made the, the Word of God the focus. He preached the Word of God like I do every Sunday. He explained it, and he taught others to do the same. Well, these men would write down everything that they believed that Moses would do pertaining to the law of Moses, they, they wrote it down. They scribed it down, right? That's their name. They, they're scribed. They're, they became professional expounders of the law of Moses. They had bracelets that said WWMD. What would Moses do? Okay? I'm not sure if that's true, but they definitely wrote commentaries Books and books and books about what would Moses do? What's the law of Moses? How do we respond in every situation? And they basically became nitpickers of the law. They cared more about the letter of the law than they did the spirit of the law. I give you a warning that there are modern day scribes today. Those that are nitpickers about the rules, the laws. And there are people like them who trust in commentaries more than the Word. How, raise your hand if you have a study Bible that has notes in the margins. Many of us who read our Bibles regularly have those. Be careful. You do not believe the commentary more than the Word of God itself. So many times we tend to lean on those commentaries. We read those more or first before we actually read the Word of God. Be careful. You don't want to become a scribe. Then there's the Pharisees. The Pharisees were people, the word itself means separated. So after the Babylonian captivity, they wanted to separate themselves from, well, they were in foreign uh, place and and they were forced to do things they didn't want to do. You might remember Daniel, you know, he was forced to eat the food and, and he didn't want to eat it. And so they separated themselves and they, 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 that's, that's what the word Pharisee means. And they meant well, but beca- they became so separate, they became legalists. Legalists. And that, like the scribes, they were more concerned with the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. So you can see why the scribes and the Pharisees are traveling together. They're, they're in one accord. They care about the letter of the law. They care about the oral law, the traditions of the elders. And they're about to call Jesus out. There's another group you might see in the Bible called the Sadducees. I usually make the joke, they're Sadducee. They're liberals, okay? They're the liberals, socially-minded aristocrats, the ruling class. And they didn't believe in miracles, like the resurrection. Which is why you see when you read the book of Acts, when the first church began, the main enemy of the new church, the early church, was the Sadducees. Because the early church preached one main thing. It's the core of the gospel. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they didn't believe in the resurrection. So, lastly, you have the Herodians. Herodians were Jewish political opportunists. And they basically were followers of and they supported Herod's family. Herod, of course, was an evil person, but Herod the Great built their temple. So they just looked for opportunities to support Herod. 
So here you have all those groups I just thought that would be really good for you. You read your Bible, you see those names. Who are these people? Where do they come from? Where do they begin? And here we are, you know, some of them began 500 years before Jesus even sets foot on earth. And so now you have all of this stuff that they have, and you'll see how it plays into this. The scribes and Pharisees say to Jesus, verse 2, Matthew 15, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat. Now, you're not going to find this hand-washing rule, this law, this tradition in the Bible. Their accusation is based on the oral law. Now, you might think, well, what? What's the oral law? I know, I know the law of Moses. I read, I've read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I know what the law of Moses is. I know the prophets. What's the oral law? The oral law is called the Jewish Talmud. Talmud means learning or instruction. It is many, many books that have been written, commentaries, if you will, on the law of Moses. It's called the oral law. In the Talmud is the Mishnah. Mishnah means repetition. Basically, the oral law would teach a Jewish person how to act in every possible scenario. Every single possible scenario that they could possibly think of that a Jewish person would come into, this is how you respond. This is how you act. That's the oral law. One scenario, how do you be clean when you eat a meal? They had to wash their hands. Now, you tell a seven-year-old to wash their hands before they eat. They run in the bathroom. They turn the water on. Their hands are under there for about a second. They shut it off. They shake their hands. They wipe them off, and they're ready for dinner. Okay? Obviously, that's not what they're doing. Their specific way of washing their hands required two things. Number one, they held their hands like this, and the person would pour water on their fingertips, and it would drip off their wrists. Then they would turn their hands over, they would pour it on their wrists, and it would drip off their fingertips. And they wouldn't just do this at the beginning of the meal. They would do this in between every course. And that's what they're saying to Jesus. Why don't you wash your hands when you eat? Why aren't you doing this? They weren't saying disciples were dirty. Don't get this impression that the disciples are these, you know, uh, I don't know, some... Charles Dickens' you know, novel comes to mind. You know, they're not these dirty men. They're, they're, they're not following the tradition of the elders. As the fiddler on the roof said, it's tradition, right? Before the fiddler on the roof, there was the scribe on the street. All right? There's a scribe on the street telling you how to respond. So Jesus has a rebuke of his own. He said to them, verse 3, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now he's going to get personal. Verse 4, God commanded you to honor your father and your mother. Is that not one of the Ten Commandments? And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me, well, that's given to God already then he doesn't need to honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Let me explain what Jesus is saying here. Because you need some context to understand what's going on. And when you look at Mark, the same scenario here, the same story here, 
Mark uses the word Corbin. Corbin means offering. So this is what's going on here. These people were basically like uh, finding a loophole, if you will. Instead of honoring their mother and their father, taking care of them, if their mother or father came to them with something that they needed, they would call out Corbin. They would say, we've already dedicated that money or that thing to God. I can't give it to you, mom or dad. I've already given it to God. And by the way, what they've Corbined, they could actually use for themselves. So this is what Jesus is saying. You're honoring the oral law more than you are the Ten Commandments. Jesus then gave the scribes and Pharisees a new name. Verse 7. You hypocrites. You actors. Because that's what a hypocrite is. It's an actor that hides behind a mask. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the man-made traditions. They were called hypocrites by Jesus. They pretended to be someone they were not. Spiritual hypocrites. Raise your hand if you like to be called a hypocrite. Nobody's raising their hand. Because nobody likes to be called a hypocrite. Two brothers lived in a small town. They were known by everyone as scoundrels, womanizers, troublemakers, drunks. Then one day, one of those brothers died. And the living brother went to the only pastor in the small town and asked him to do a funeral service for his brother. He made a special request. He said, Pastor, during the memorial, I really want you to call my brother a saint. The pastor looked at him and said, Come on. Everybody in town knows you. They know your brother. You're as far from a saint as anyone is. He goes, I don't care. I want you to call my brother a saint, and if you do it, I'll donate a bunch of money to the church. Well, every pastor, when they hear that, says, hmm. And being a wise pastor, he agreed. He agreed, and at the memorial, he spoke about the man's brother. He said, you know this man, he's lived in our town for many years, he was a scoundrel, He was a drunk. He was a troublemaker. He was a womanizer. He was nothing but problems. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. The pastor was not a hypocrite. But I doubt he got that donation. (laughs) After calling them hypocrites, Jesus explained what truly makes a person clean. Here, holy. He goes on to say in verse 10, he wanted to teach his disciples. Verse 10, he said, he called the people to him and he said, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. The disciples came and said, 
Don't you know you offended the Pharisees by saying that? Jesus said, every plant that my Heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone. They're blind guides. Blind leading the blind. They're both going to fall into a pit. Peter said, well, explain it to us. And of course, Jesus said what he usually says to his disciples. Are you still without understanding? Don't you get it, boys? Verse 17. Don't you see whatever goes into your mouth, the food that you eat, just goes through your stomach and is expelled. But what comes out of your mouth comes from your heart. And that's what can defile a person. What comes out of your heart are evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat without unwashed hands or with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now by saying that, Jesus teaches us today a very important truth. Traditions do not make you holy or unholy. They don't make you right with God. It's your heart that matters. I believe in our church today, in the body of Christ, the universal church, if you will, we have two traditions that matter. Communion and baptism. And every church should be taking communion regularly and celebrating baptisms regularly. Now Jesus told his disciples to take this bread, it's my body, take this cup and drink, it's the blood of the new covenant. And he didn't tell them, do this every time you meet. Do this on the third Tuesday of the month. He didn't say any of that. He just said, do this until I come back. So some churches do it every week, that's fine. We do it the first Sunday of the month. Then Jesus said, you should baptize He said it in the Great Commission, go and make disciples and baptize them, just like it says on the back of our wall here, where our baptismal is. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself, led by example, he was baptized by immersion. He went underwater and came out of the water. And he told his disciples to do that. To me, those are the two traditions that we need to continue. But even those two traditions can be done in a poor way, if the heart isn't right. If the heart isn't right. All other traditions that we come up against are two. If there's something that's meaningful to you, a tradition that you really think is important in the church, or maybe it's just something that you do in your family, or even in your own time with God. If you have a tradition, you know, you know, maybe it's the sign of the cross that you make when you enter a church building, or, or maybe it's how you pray or what you say. Whatever it is, I encourage you to ask yourself three questions. This is as practical as I can be for you this morning and try to help you when it comes to, to traditions. First of all, ask yourself, what is the original purpose of the tradition? Why did this tradition begin? What's the purpose of it? Secondly, ask yourself, does this honor God? Am I honoring God? Or, or, or you know, is this honoring me or somebody else? And is my heart right? right? Is my heart right? Ask yourself those three questions. On Easter, a mother and a daughter were in the kitchen preparing ham dinner. 
And before placing the ham in the pan, the mother chopped off a big chunk off the end of the ham and threw it in the garbage. And the daughter was really confused by that. She said, Mom, why, why don't you do that? Why are you wasting that big chunk of ham there? She said, I'm not sure. My mom's always done it that way. Let me call her and find out. So she called her mom said, Mom, why, why do you cut off the end of the ham and throw it away before you cook the ham? And she said, I'm not sure. Let me call my mom. Well, come to find out, the first mom didn't have a pan big enough to fit the whole ham. So all these daughters have been cutting off meat that's good and throwing it away because they didn't know the purpose. So you've got to know the purpose of the tradition. And you've got to make sure that that tradition honors God. Don't ever settle with these words. I don't like these words. We've always done it that way. Well, we've always done it that way. Don't settle for those words. If the tradition has the wrong purpose or doesn't honor God, it's time to stop. Let's, let's move on. Let's do something different. I'll give you this last example as a way of showing you how I've had to, to uh, deal with and handle a tradition here at our church, Life of Purpose. We've done something since the very beginning in 2006. We've had what's called the Agape Feast. The Agape Feast. Agape means love. And we've had this potluck. Everybody brings a, a dish to pass. And we do it the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And it's always a big hit. How many of you have come to Agape Feast before? Right? Almost everybody has raised their hand. If not, you're going you're gonna to love it. We, we didn't do it last year, correct? Because of COVID. So we are excited this year to do it again. But the reason why I started this tradition is because my first year as a pastor, I was preaching through the book of Acts. And I went through the whole book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, I found out that the first church was having these agape feasts. They would gather together, uh, the church, on the Lord's Day, and they would share a meal together. And then... They would have communion together, and, and they would share, you know, life together. They'd have fellowship. Uh, if you've ever belonged to a small group before, small group is like, you know, 10, 12 people, and you've all, you know, come together probably in someone's home, and you've shared a meal, and had some laughs, and had some fun, and studied the word, and maybe talked about some, some stuff in life, you know, that we have. If you've ever done that before, that's an agape feast. Okay, it's a mini agape feast, and um, it's a special time. You know, so we, we, we are um, having small groups here at Life Purpose. We call them anchor groups, because we want you to be anchored um, with the body of Christ. Well, our whole church gets together for an agape feast. We've been doing it, we were doing it from the beginning, and it was just getting better and better and better, and very creative. Man, we had... Uh, Terry, I, th- I think it's Terry's birthday today, right? And Terry, Terry uh, Weissick had, uh, Joe's dad had a, uh, you know, the chef hat. Man, he was like the guy carving the meat at the end. I mean, it was, it was elaborate. It was great. Well, went on for many years, and then one year I thought to myself, you know, we're a small church, and the longer a church gathers together, they have this inward, we, churches tend to turn inward. Any organized, any group tends to turn inward, and we forget that our calling is to go and make disciples. And so I'm always thinking about that. And so I thought, well, let's change up the Agape Feast. Let's make it more of an outreach. And um, let's have everyone invite their friends. We'll promote it. We'll have a bounce house for the kids. We'll have games. 
And we had a busy Sunday, probably the highest attending agape feast that we ever had before. And I thought to myself at the end, this is, this is great. It was a success. But then what, what I found out was is that most of our folks that had been there since the beginning, they didn't like it. They didn't like it because they felt that the agape feast had lost its intimacy, that it was more of, of a fellowship thing that was supposed to happen and, and really sharing a meal and, and getting... And so I was faced with this dilemma, you know, like the event was good in my eyes, we brought people in that didn't have a church home and so on. But our members were like, we had a good tradition going and you ruined it, Pastor. <laughs> they always point the finger at me, you know. It's Chrissy's fault too. I'm taking her down. <laughs> so I asked myself, what's the purpose of the tradition? Does it honor God? Is my heart right? Those are the three questions you ask yourself. What's the purpose of this tradition? Does it honor God? Is my heart right? And I studied the word. I said, where, where in the word does it talk about the agape feast? Well, it does talk about it in 1 Corinthians and in Jude. And come to find out, the first church had their own agape problems. People would show up. This is actually talked about in 1 Corinthians 11. People would show up drunk to the agape feast. They would show up early, eat all the food, and leave other people hungry. Jude points out false teachers would come to these agape feasts and teach lies, spread their lies. So a lot of stuff can happen in an agape feast. A lot worse than I did, all right? But I determined through prayer, through studying the word, that the purpose of the agape feast was to strengthen the fellowship between believers in the church, to come together, to share a meal, to share life together, to have some deep conversations that go beyond you know, the weather and how bad the lions are going to be this year, we wanted to get intimate with one another. So I don't try to make the Agape Feast an outreach event. We're having a fall festival in October. We can do it then, right, for example. Um, but I do want us to always encourage others to come because how easy is it to say, hey, come to my church. We're having a, we're having a meal, right? We'll feed you. But it is intended for that, and I understand that. So whatever the tradition is, Whatever you do in your own walk with God or in your church, okay, know the purpose. Does it honor God? Is your heart right? Always remember, your heart is what matters most to God. If your heart isn't right, then your actions, they're pointless. God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Right? David said, create in me a clean heart, O God. It's all about your heart. I'm going to pray. Our team's going to come up and sing our final song. Let this be a time where you really, you really get right with God. Get your heart right with God. Talk to him. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today as we worship you and praise your name. As we sing this final song, let us come back to the heart of worship. Let us come back to what really matters. It's not about what we could ever do for you, God. But it's about giving you our hearts, surrendering our heart to you. As we sang earlier, our heart is yours, God. Let that be true, not just in our words, but in our actions. As we leave this place and we go out into this world, let it be known 
that we are worshipers of the one true God. In Jesus' name, amen.